Hey everyone, Sadie Lincoln here, and I'm so happy to be guiding this conversation around my favorite topic, how together we can redefine what success in fitness means. Today, I'm here with Kelly McConigal, a health psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University, who is known for her work in the field of science help, which focuses on translating insights from psychology and neuroscience into practical strategies that support health and well-being. Kelly is the author of The Willpower Instinct, The Upside of Stress, and Just Out, The Joy of Movement. I loved this book. During our conversation, we dive into her fascinating research that explores how physical exercise can be a powerful antidote to the modern epidemic of depression, anxiety, and loneliness. This is right up our alley here at Bar 3. Since the beginning, we created Bar 3 to help fight lonely. We know building community is just as healthy and important as building strong muscles. I hope this conversation inspires you to connect with yourself, your practice, and the Bar 3 community in a new and joyful way. All right, Kelly, thank you for coming all the way to Portland to see us. I'm excited to be here. It's so so, great to meet you. I'm so happy you're here. So to kick things off, you just took your first Bar 3 class. Yes. Um, How would you describe it in three words? Um, Empowered, strong, and flow. Flow. Love it. Empowered, strong, and flow. I uh, feel like I could talk to you about your first experience this entire time we're Ooh, recording. Ask me about it because I really enjoyed <laughs> class. And I okay, I will a little it. bit, but more importantly, I want to talk about you and your fantastic um, background and your book that you just released, The Joy of Movement, which is sitting on my lap. And I was just telling you before we started, I know for certain that this is going to resonate with our, our entire audience and specifically all of our our three instructors. I hope so, because I believe that that facilitating group movement experiences is one of the most amazing contributions that people are making to the world. Yeah, so I do too. I'm a little biased, but yeah. this book well. put the science behind why um, it feels so good to be in a group environment while moving. And it's something I always knew, like, no, no, you know, inside of me. But to have the evidence now to back that is really, really refreshing. And not just as proof, but I feel like sometimes the science helps me understand my experience so that I can enjoy it even more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like it's it's both validating, but it also it inspires me to actually approach whether I'm teaching or taking a group class to really understand what the magic is so I, I get even more of it. Right. Okay. Well, let's, we'll get back to the Bar 3 class. Okay. Um, but I, as I mentioned, I just read your book, The Joy of Movement. I absolutely loved it, every single word of it. And I especially loved hearing a little bit about your origin story when it comes to fitness and your love of group exercise. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and also uh, your background so we all ha- we all have context about who you are? Yeah, so I first discovered what was called calisthenics and then aerobics in the 80s when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And my mom would buy um, workout videos at garage sales, bring them home, never do them. And I would pop them in the VCR. And I just fell in love mm-hmm. with moving my body in synchrony with other people's bodies on TV to music. I loved the the feeling of like strength and control from the calisthenics, which is so much like bar mm-hmm. and uh, and the the dance elements and things like jazzercise. And um, it was funny because I 
was one of those kids that was called a gym class loser. I was terrible at sports. I was a slow runner. They actually put me in a remedial gym class at one point because mm-hmm. I was so uncoordinated. And yet somehow when I was asked to move my body in these very specific ways and to synchronize with a beat and to synchronize with what I could see other people doing, it's like I unlocked my body's intelligence and I had a totally different experience of movement. Um, and I got hooked. I, you know, used workout videos all the way through high school. Mm-hmm. I discovered um, actual group exercise and yoga when I was in college. And um, Okay, let's back okay, up yes. to the 80s workout videos. Okay. because Jazzercise was number one, the original. <laughs> I did this. It's on YouTube. And uh, to sort of celebrate my book coming out, I actually went back and did that first video. No and way. And although it's a little bit cheesy, first of all, I remembered the choreography, which I couldn't believe I haven't wow, done it in muscle memory. Uh, you know, almost 30 years. And it's still amazing because mm-hmm. even if you remove the cultural trappings from some of these old workouts, there is still the inherent joy of moving your body in expressive ways, of feeling your own strength, of singing along, which is one of the reasons I loved jazzercise. Um, I so. loved my first experience with group exercise. Well, yeah, fitness as we know it today. When it, I I think fitness was basically invented in 1980, like <laughs> as we know it, right? Yeah, it there came was on, a revolution, right? It, it came on the world stage, and Jane Fonda was a big, you know, pioneer, and she's who introduced me to aerobics and with my mom in my living room, and so that whole part of your story, I mean, everything you just said <laughs> is me. Yeah, I know. I remember being um, with. Craybaugh was our uh, gym teacher in middle school, and he's a really great guy. He had a raspy voice. He's like your typical gym teacher. And I remember doing box jumps and wall sits and having to run stairs and feeling just demoralized. Like it hurt. It didn't feel good. I felt silly. I didn't feel strong. People made fun of me about the way I ran. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many of what you, so many things that you write about are, are me and how I discovered my joy of moving to music in more of a like traditional sense it was a class called cheer and dance oh, yeah. at middle school in middle school and it was it was just I was like okay well if this is fitness I'll do this and I think that's what led me to be a cheerleader which I wasn't very good at but <laughs> that's how I got down that path um Okay, so your love of group exercise began in the 80s. Then you started to teach. Mm -hmm. When did you start teaching? Uh, My first year in graduate school. I actually, I was taking a ton of dance and yoga classes and and group exercise, basically to survive, to keep my sanity. You know, it was grad school. It was stressful. I'd moved across the country. I lost my entire social network. And I was so busy trying to be a successful graduate student that I really hadn't formed any close friendships. Mm -hmm. And um, the movement classes I was taking was where I really felt connected to myself and to community. And it was, it was, you know, helping me maintain my, my mental health. Mm-hmm. And um, my yoga teacher at Stanford was moving. And she actually said, you know, you should teach. And she encouraged me to take a teacher training. And um, I basically spent the summer after my first year in graduate school doing trainings, getting certified um, from ACE as a group fitness instructor, mm-hmm. and eventually auditioning to teach yoga and um, dance fitness at Stanford to other graduate students. And was that intimidating for you? I was so I actually took an entire class called the Psychology of Shyness that summer, <laughs> where the the purpose of the class was to help you deal with your own anxiety. They called mm-hmm. it shyness. I mean, you know, this was 20 years ago. We were trying to be polite, I guess. But it was basically for people who 
we deal with a lot of shyness and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And our um, our class project was to pick something that was meaningful to us, but that we had been avoiding out of fear. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, this is it. I'm going to become certified and I'm going to audition by the end of this class. And it was totally overwhelming um, to do it. And I actually, you know, I remember right before my audition, I was so anxious. I considered walking home and pretending that it had never happened because, you know, my heart was beating so fast. And I just, I, I was like, this is so important to me. And uh, I was so overwhelmed with anxiety, but I stayed and I did it. And I have a specific memory of the second class. So it wasn't my audition class, which is funny. They made you teach strength, cardio aerobics, um, uh, kickboxing. I had to teach like Instead of you do your best thing, they make you teach like five to ten minutes of every single format on the schedule. So it was kind of a crazy class to wow, teach. Wow, yeah. Um, and the first dance fitness class I taught for them, I was watching people. We were actually we were doing um, isolations and kicks across the floor. And I remember the song was Right on Time, which is fabulous house anthem. And I remember watching people mm-hmm. move and smiling and the energy in the room. And I literally had a thought in my head like, this is what I was born to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, I still feel that way every time mm-hmm. I teach a class. Mm-hmm. Well, I loved your, um, I don't know what chapter it's in, I forget, but you talked about how the physical and emotional benefits of being an instructor. Yes. And that there's... People don't talk yeah, about this. Talk to me about this because I have some interesting thoughts about it as it relates to specifically bar three. And I, I, I have some yeah. questions around it. So specifically yeah, trust. So or, let me explain yeah. that. So mm-hmm. what what the science shows is that when you move in synchrony with other people, um, it, it elicits a, a bonding response in your brain and in your body. And when you move in synchrony with someone else, you're more likely to like them afterward, to trust them, to feel similar to them. And uh, there's something particularly powerful about mirroring someone else's movements. Mm-hmm. So when you think about what's happening in a group movement class, everyone in the room is spending at least some part of the time looking at your body moving, whether you're demonstrating or doing the whole workout with them. And they have the experience of intentionally synchronizing their movement to your movement. So we know that everyone in the room is going to have this experience of bonding with everyone else in the room because you're all moving in synchrony. But because and synchrony is is different than copying. It is. Right? Yeah. It's just moving similarly. Right? It, it is. So it's not idea, like carbon copy. No, no, no. It's yeah. it's the idea that, you know, if I'm lifting my arms overhead and I can see you in my my vision or my peripheral vision, and I see you moving your arms overhead, and maybe we're both inhaling at the same time. Right. What happens is my brain does not experience us as two separate units, mm-hmm. like I'm moving and you're moving. Mm-hmm. My brain somehow senses Sadie as an extension of me. And I mm-hmm. feel that we are moving in this way and we are practicing this gesture. And mm-hmm. so the synchrony is really what happens is you have a sense of being connected to other people through shared intention and shared action. So it's not even so much does it look exactly the same or is the timing exactly precise. It's this idea that we are doing something collective. Right. And when that happens, right, so you you feel bonded to everyone else. But um, when you're instructing a class, right, so everyone in the room is having that experience with you. And if they come back, they repeat it. So over and over, people start to um, to really you know, it's almost a form of projection where they view you as being so trustworthy. They like you. They feel connected to you. 
And uh, and also they're probably getting the endorphin rush of the movement and they feel empowered and they feel good about themselves. And some of that sort of rubs off it, you know, people project it onto the instructor. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I mentioned that I dealt a lot with anxiety and something about teaching movement. I know I, I growing up and into graduate school, I guess I just always assumed that people didn't like me. It wasn't like a I, my experience of life was everyone hated me, but it's just sort of like th- my assumption about the world would be that, you know, you as a stranger, as a human being, wouldn't necessarily like me or care about me. When I started teaching group movement. I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, and of course, it's probably not true. I mean, probably most of I'm us not, are I'm not phenomenally likable. Right. <laughs> um, but we have this inner dialogue yes. that's, I'm not enough. And I'm, that people are judging me. Right. And if people really knew the real me, maybe they wouldn't mm-hmm. like me or mm-hmm. trust me. Um, and when I started teaching group movement, I still remember the first things that would happen is I would be walking around campus and people would smile and wave at me. And I'd be like, oh, I think that that woman was in my class last week. And this, like that I would walk around in the world and what felt to me like strangers were smiling at me and waving at me. It's like a totally different universe I was living in. Mm-hmm. And I started just sort of smiling and waving at everyone that I saw. It sort of brought something out in me. Because you were seen, you were heard, you felt a sense of belonging. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and I and started I to feel like it was my responsibility to, it, it allowed me to realize that it was my role to offer that to others. It was the first place where I received it mm-hmm. from my own students and I feel like they gave me permission to be the kind of person who cares tremendously about offering that to others. It's like I didn't even know that I could create belonging for others because mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I belonged. Right. And and then it self-actualized. Yeah. And then you grew into that. I grew into it because yeah. my students my students made me belong and then allowed mm-hmm. me to become the kind of person who would so, so greatly prioritize and, and feel privileged to try to do that for others. Right. I, I've witnessed that over and over and over again in our Bar 3 classes. One of my favorite things is to witness a client become an instructor. Mm-hmm. And I always tell them, like, during our instructor training, it would be like me learning to play the violin right now as an adult. Like, a, a brand new skill as an adult to learn is powerful and beautiful in itself. And then to witness that that building of trust between clients and the new instructor and the new instructor of clients and the sense of belonging and community is always been one of, it is one of my favorite um, parts of being a part of Bar 3 in this company and growing. Um, We have over 1,400 instructors now that have gone through this process and continue to learn and grow. But what I think is really interesting about when you were talking about how the mirroring Mm -hmm. and how we visually will watch an instructor and we'll all move in unison to that instructor, one thing that we've really focused on is we'll say things like, I'm your guide, but you are your own best teacher. And I may take one shape, but I invite you to take a different shape if that's what serves your body. And what has brought me even more joy, like just last Tuesday, I taught class and I was doing tricep extensions I started there and I said, you can stay here if you want, or you can join me on the ground and I'm going to do reverse push-ups, which is weight-bearing. If if your wrists or shoulders are bothering you or it doesn't suit you, you don't have to follow along with me. I went down and did reverse push-ups with two other people in class. I think there were 26 people in class. Most people decided to stand tall. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, they were all teaching. They were all a part of the process of 
how we show up in our bodies and the choices we make. We've created this community where everybody is witnessing that with yes. respect. And that's then exactly that's this, what I was thinking. You know, mm-hmm. Because so collective joy, that's that particular, I mean, that's what scientists call it, mm-hmm. that, that particular euphoria that comes from moving in synchrony with other people. But that's only one of the joys of a group movement experience. And another big part of it is the joy that you get from participating uh, as yourself based on what you need and what you want and who you are in this moment Mm -hmm. and having it, as you said, witnessed and celebrated by others that you get to practice this experience of, of contributing and taking care of yourself. And that's its own particular joy. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, that perhaps uh, an instructor or others can celebrate you in the moment of strength when you do something harder than you've ever done before. Mm -hmm. And that that same community would also celebrate when you need to take a break and reset and breathe and and do a modification that reflects what's present in your body and mind today. Mm -hmm. When you get to be a part of a, a community that values that process, it's so reinforcing. And again, that's and of course, you can also do that on your own because you're building a relationship with yourself right. um, every time you make that choice. But I do think right. that there's something particularly powerful about doing it um, in community. You have a on page 95, a quote, you say, as long as our DNA compels us to connect with others, we will continue to seek out places where we can move and sweat together. Yes, I love that. And I've been researching lonely lately. Mm. Just because of my own personal experience, and it sounds like we have a shared experience there, when you were talking about how you were like, I don't know if people like me, that's the most lonely feeling, right? Being the only person and feeling like you're not really belonging is lonely. And I've had moments of deep, deep lonely in my life, and group exercise is what healed me. It, yeah. It's what made me feel alive and um, like I was recognized and... Um, happy in my body. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people who are lonely don't feel good in their bodies or they feel disassociated with their bodies. Mm. And recent, there was a uh, study that came out and New York Times wrote on it um, that loneliness is as much a predictor of longevity as smoking mm-hmm. is now. It's yeah. evidence-based. It's a yeah. disease. Social connection is is probably the best predictor of longevity and physical health and mental health. And, you know, what I, I, so that particular study gets quoted to me all the time, almost mm-hmm. as if we need to justify valuing social connection. I know. And when, when actually, right? I mean, Remember the loneliness it. is bad enough in itself, like to <laughs> yeah. justify mm-hmm. wanting to, that, that actually the, it's more, I think the way to understand that study is not that we should care about loneliness because it's as bad for you as smoking, but really the heart of that, that scientific finding is social connection is so integral to our well-being that of course it's going to be one of the best predictors of how long you live mm-hmm. because there is nothing more important to human survival as a species than social connection. Mm-hmm. And um, people are often surprised that physical activity is one of the best ways to relieve loneliness, even if you're not moving with other people. So the thing, one of the things that I was most delighted and surprised to find is that every form of movement primes the... Um, the neurochemistry of social connection and bonding. So everything from the runner's high and the release of endocannabinoids when you get your heart rate up, that gives you that that sort of that feeling of uh, what we would think of as an exercise high. But mm-hmm. that is 
increasing the joy that you get from connecting with others. It makes you more that, sensitive. So that to, chemical that's released yeah. primes you for having more joy in yeah. relationships it helps, after you're done it running. It helps relieve social anxiety. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, in, it enhances the pleasures of play, of cooperation, of teamwork, of listening, of mm. telling stories. Like endocannabinoids, which is what cannabis mimics, but it's slightly different effect than when it's naturally occurring in your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, endocannabinoids basically make us a more... Um, social version of ourselves. And um, you can get that kind of high, that neurochemistry from any type of movement that gets your heart rate up a little bit. So, you know, bar is a perfect example. Um, You don't need to kill yourself with exertion. Like the sweet spot for creating the neurochemistry of of social connection is actually pretty much moderate intensity. I... Can you say that again? Because that (laughs) I underlined that, I highlighted that because we have been brainwashed in the fitness industry to think no pain, no gain. That the harder you go, the more you beat yourself up, the more you're drenched with sweat, that, you know, um, the and there better is it will. Value there is value to the, not the right. beating yourself up part. Right. I mean, the... But I think that the reason there is value to high intensity and yeah. I, absolutely there's value in pushing ourselves beyond comfort yeah. and that sense of resilience and grit right. and, and confidence it is a different and power. Thing. And if what you're looking for is connection. Right. Right. Um, I just, I, where, where, what I'm really fascinated in is our relation, our collective relationship with exercise and movement. Yeah. I think it's broken. Overall, I think most people have a broken relationship with fitness. Fitness isn't broken. Fitness works. When you study it in a lab, as you know, when you really research it, it's so good for us. Mm -hmm. And um, we know that. We've won the hearts and minds of everybody. We know that fitness is good for us. Um, We want to do it. We really want to do it. But we don't. And that's that's the question I have. We have a thirty yeah. billion dollar fitness industry, but our health is on a serious decline, and there's a disconnect. And so, what we're tackling at Bar Three is figuring out how do we mend our relationship mm-hmm. with fitness. And when we anchor fitness and exercise to pain, to going really hard, I think what happens often is people jump into exercise really hard, and then they have a negative association with it. It hurts. It burns. It's a chore. It's a drag. It's what other people do who are fit. But when we exercise in a moderate way, and everybody's different, where your heart rate's up just enough, where you're out of discomfort just enough, um, that's when... As I underlined in your book, joy and the amazing happy happy chemicals yeah. are released, right? You know, so one of the studies that I found really fascinating looked at how we interpret physical sensations of effort. And actually had women do uh, a moderate intensity workout that was definitely challenging for them. And they recorded, they asked them to talk aloud every yeah. thought that goes through your mind while you're doing this workout. Mm-hmm. And they found that some women, as soon as their heart rate started to get up, get higher and when they started to sweat, they had these negative thoughts like, this means I'm out of shape. This means I can't do it. Uh, maybe there was shame around sweating because they associated sweating with with being sort of unattractive or maybe too large. Um, mm-hmm. And there, there was this possibility to have this negative stream of thoughts. And when that was the dominant experience, those women did not enjoy their workout. But so it's that inner dialogue of, inner I'm dialogue. not enough, I'm yeah. not enough, this I mean, is it was, hard. It was particularly this interpreting is... physical sensations of effort mm-hmm. as indicating what's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And other women would take those same physical symptoms, signals, right. my, heart, my heart, is, uh, heart rate is higher, and they would think, wow, this means I'm getting stronger. Mm-hmm. They would 
interpret their sweat as a sign that they were doing something good for their bodies. And um, when women had that kind of interpretation of effort, they enjoyed the same workout much more, even though they were all working at the same intensity. Mm -hmm. And again, this is where I think a big part of getting joy from movement is mindset. And a lot of times, like when you said people jump into super high intensity, they're, they're dealing with those voices in their head that are saying, you know, I'm too old for this. I'm too out of shape for this. They interpret it as a failure experience, even though what those uh, signals really mean is you are getting stronger. You're brave. You're right. challenging yourself. Wow, and my so body can accomplish so people much. People often need right. an environment that encourages those cues. Like even just this morning in, in the Bar 3 class, um, my instructor Holly was saying, if you if you sense that you need to take a moment and reset, that's a good thing. It means that you really challenge yourself. And when mm-hmm. you when you take that moment, that like you can actually celebrate that you got to the point where you needed to do that. And right. think about what the natural Instead voice in your like, head could oh, be. Oh, I'm totally, why couldn't yeah. I make it? You know, right. everyone else is still going. Right. And so I think that one of the reasons sometimes people abandon their uh, attempts to work out is because they're dealing with these voices in their head that maybe from past movement experiences from our culture. Um, comparison. Comparison. And, and so I think need, trying to work out to be... people who can give us a different, a different way of thinking about it. I think it's, I, I, it's so interesting. I loved, I again, that was a part I underlined in your book, um, about those two voices, that a shift in what we're telling ourselves as we're moving has profound impact on our health and well-being. Yes. And just noticing with compassion when that inner critic comes on. Like, ugh. This is too hard for me. Yeah. I can't do this. Or or I'm going to just work through that bad pain in my shoulder and plank because... I don't want to, people to see me give up. Right. And you know what's Which so is, amazing is like you, we you all practice do that. that in a movement experience. You practice either... You practice the self-care when you need to. You rest in order to re-engage. Um, or... You you feel the physical signs of effort, and you say to yourself, "I am amazing." Um, mm-hmm. That now, the next time you have to do something that's difficult but meaningful to you, you'll remember that you'll have an embodied, visceral memory that you are someone who can choose to do something hard when it's connected to your values, or mm-hmm. you'll be at a you know, breaking point where you really do need to rest in your life, and you will have an embodied, visceral experience and memory that you are someone who can choose to do that even if you're worried about being judged by others for needing to take that break and to recover. And I think right. we learn so well from movement because our minds, we make meaning out of movement. Doing Practicing something in a physical environment is one of the best ways to learn a new like psychological skill or strength. One of my dear friends and mindfulness teacher, his name's Don Dapani, he, had, he said to me once, Sadie, whatever it is you practice, you become. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to him about beating myself up as not being present as a mother. And I always knew I was going to be a mother. I, I didn't always know I was going to run a big company. And I didn't also know that energetically that is what would pull my attention just naturally is running the company versus being present with my children. And he said, well, of course you're, you're distracted as a mom. You're really good at being distracted. You practice it all the time. Whatever it is you practice, you become, you practice. When you come home, you're on your email or Facebook or, you know, thinking about work while you're with your kids, you're practicing being a distracted mom. And it was such a a profound moment for me to realize that we collectively practice things we don't really want to become on accident, on autopilot. And, And I've taken that idea into bar three. 
And when we're all in the room together, it's like, what, what do we, you truly want to practice today? What do you want to practice becoming? Do you want to practice becoming compassionate in your body? Then notice when that inner critic comes in and crowd it out with a voice of compassion. And then what you tied together, which is so beautiful, is the physiology of combining, it's a metaphor, right? Combining that idea, the, the thought with the movement changes our chemistry, yeah, and changes. Talk, talk to us a little bit about the metaphor of movement, because there yeah. you have a whole little section in that, and we talk about that all the time at Bar Three. Well, so fascinating. One, one of the things that um, is so interesting about human beings is our sense of self, like how how you know who you are, what your qualities are, um, where you're headed in the world. When you look in the brain at what's happening when people have a strong sense of themselves or they're thinking about themselves, it's very much informed by the body mm-hmm. and by what your body is doing. Like we know who we are by what we're sensing and feeling in our body, your posture, your movement, um, other sensations, your heart beating and your your breath. And so we mm-hmm. know when you do a movement, every movement has its own quality. So let's say you're picking up something really heavy. And when you pick up something heavy, there's going to be force on your tendons and contraction in your muscles. And those those muscles and and joints send sensory information to your brain that doesn't only tell your brain, my arms are bending to lift something heavy. Mm -hmm. Those sensory receptors send signals to your brain that have emotions embedded in them so that when you pick up something heavy, most likely what happens is your brain says, I am strong. And your sense of self is now informed by the physical signals of lifting something heavy. When you move with grace and your body senses that extension through your fascia and your muscles, and maybe you can even see visually what your body looks like in a mirror or just by looking at yourself, um, the brain doesn't only get signals that say, my arm is reaching out. Your brain gets a signal that says, I am graceful. I am beautiful. Mm -hmm. When you move with speed, you get signals that say, I am free. Right. And when you modify, I am honest. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so then it's uh, sometimes referred to as affective proprioception. Affective means emotional mm. and proprioception means to feel yourself. Mm-hmm. And so when you know that every movement creates emotional proprioception, that you are feeling you are feeling yourself and sensing yourself with all these different emotional qualities, then it becomes very important to think about what movement you want to practice. You know, you said you you right. become what you practice. Mm-hmm. So when you choose to move with strength, when you choose to move with intention, when you move mindfully, uh, again, it's not just an idea. Your brain literally understands this is who I am. Mm-hmm. And it can be have very profound impacts on your sense of self and what's possible for you. Yeah. I talked to so many people whose lives were changed when they moved in ways they'd never moved before because it changed how they thought of themselves and what was possible. Right. Yeah, you described the woman, the Tough mutter woman oh, jumping yes. off the plank and her... She rewrote a traumatic experience from childhood. Right. Yeah, this was a woman who had been taught to swim by being forced to jump off a high dive and she didn't want to do it. And the, it, her memory of this from decades earlier is that the swim instructor actually followed her up and said, if you don't jump, I'm going to push you off. You are not allowed to climb back down. Mm-hmm. She had this hugely traumatic experience that caused a fear of water for for her whole adult life. And when she was training to do this obstacle course, the Tough Mudder, she knew there was an obstacle 
where you could jump off basically like a high dive platform. And Tough Mudder is so great because you can skip any obstacle you don't want. There's a, a real sense oh, of that's choice a good, and empowerment. that's a good footnote. <laughs> I know. It's so important, right? I, when I first heard of things like Tough Mudder or, you yeah. know, like CrossFit, often in my mind, I'm like, oh, Permission to pass. horrible. Yeah. But it's, it is a metaphor. <laughs> mm-hmm. You get to face an obstacle and you get to decide, right. Right. is doing this obstacle meaningful enough to me that I want to experience some fear around it or some physical discomfort around it right. because it's a story that I'm going to remember about myself and what I'm capable of and maybe the support that I'll receive from others right. when I face my fear. So she did it. She jumped off. It was a great like milestone epic moment for her where she got to experience the fear. She still had the fear of jumping, yeah. but she had the choice to climb back down and not do it. Mm-hmm. And she had the support of her friends and, and strangers, and she decided she wanted to do it. And so she had this new memory of courage. And right. I feel like, you know, there's so many opportunities in movement. We to, can to rewrite, story. rewrite our stories yeah. to be more aligned with our who we know we really are. Yeah, I hear stories like that through clients, like the client who always was in the back of the room in the corner and then decided one day to be front center yeah. and rewrite the story that, I want to be here where everyone can see me and during step taps and be totally okay and confident in my body and um, have other people witness me doing that is um, builds so much more than muscle and sweat. Yeah. It builds confidence. Be someone who who is willing to take center stage or take up space like you have. It it is. It's almost like a way of learning to speak up as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think the taking up space is a big one for us in our bodies. One of the things that we've re rewritten at, at Bar 3 around the belly, uh, and it actually came about because we hired a, a voice coach because we realized that our classes that were resonating with clients were classes where the instructor was speaking with confidence Mm. and with a period at the end of sentences versus a question mark, like root your foot to the floor, let's go (laughs) to the bar, versus root your foot to the floor, Yeah. now we'll go to the bar. There's a sense of confidence in that. And Mm. so we hired a voice coach just to research what that meant for us. We're predominantly women at Bar 3 in our headquarters as well presenting in front of other people, how how can our voice match our purpose and our strength as women? And what we didn't know we were going to find out is the anatomy of voice and the diaphragm and how important it is to breathe yes. fully and let our belly fully expand. Like when you watch a kitten breathing and it mm-hmm. opens up and then it sinks, that is how we should be breathing. And yet we've been conditioned to suck it in, mm-hmm. right? Suck in the belly, suck in the belly. And so we're all holding our bellies and we're all talking from our chests. And our. Yeah. Um, I wrote an article about this like 15 years ago. I called it the politics of breathing. Really? And I linked it to we now have baggy. We now yeah. have baggy t-shirts on purpose. We, we, we get stretchier like beyond yoga pants that are soft and feel good around yeah. the belly. And we, we have moves, I don't know if Holly did it today, where you place your hand on your belly and you feel this sensation in your palm rising with your belly to to practice breathing yeah. as we should really be we breathing. We need our breath to have access to our voice and to our strength and to our courage. And mm-hmm. if women are convinced that they need to control their their 
center their core in order to look a certain way, right. you lose access to the strength of your own breath. And there's actually research. And, and you core. can induce feelings of anxiety and powerlessness. You increase the chance of experiencing a, a freeze response under stress, you mm-hmm. know, to become paralyzed by fear or by stress instead of activated in positive ways, you know, to take action or reach out to others. Mm -hmm. Our, you know, the breath is one of the things that feeds into our sense of self. And so when you train yourself to breathe deeply, responsively, with more freedom, you're you're not only breathing better, right, but you're Mm -hmm. experiencing yourself as somebody who has access to your strength and to your freedom and your courage. It is important. I think breath is a quick hack for me is whenever I'm feeling stressed out, out of place, out of body, where my thoughts are just taking over and hijacking my experience. Three deep breaths with a sigh mm. does the trick. It's yeah. like a quick, quick little hack. My favorite breathing exercise is heart breathing. This comes from my research on compassion mm. and how to access the, the, the unique physiology that compassion requires, which is a combination of being activated, a little bit of adrenaline, getting ready to act and serve and help, Mm -hmm. as well as at the very same time, a sense of calm and groundedness and centeredness so that you're not panicking and freaking out, that you are acting with intention and with purpose and awareness. It's a very kind of unique physiological signature that actually Mm -hmm. looks a lot like when you're being moderately active. Mm -hmm. Um, And the best way to access that uh, is actually to imagine breathing in and out of your heart. I teach it in almost all of my, my movement and my psychology classes that you can literally sense the movement of your lungs around your heart and, Mm. um, and there are so many different ways of breathing like that. I loved that bar three included breath work at the end of class. Too. Yeah, and we place one hand on the yeah. heart and one hand on the belly. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. I one thing I loved about your book, and I assume it was intentional, is there are there is nothing about movement as a means to look a certain way, even as a means to lose weight, to no. build muscle. To You didn't even talk about like how it strengthens your bones. Yeah. There okay, are no before and after pictures. Oh, please, no. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, yes, it is true that movement is important for physical health. The research is clear. There's no guarantee that being active will make you look a certain way. Or help you, especially lose if it's a someone else in a magazine yeah, right. or on Instagram. So, so, first of all, if you're if your purpose for moving is to guarantee a certain kind of like weight loss, or if you think you can maintain a certain appearance for the rest of your life, if you're lucky enough to to age, like that, that is not supported by the evidence. You cannot control your appearance through movement. Um, you can certainly improve your health, your physical health through movement. But we already know about the physical health component. And when what the research is very clear about is when you try to motivate people, particularly around the appearance side mm-hmm. of it, when you try to motivate people to exercise by promising them that they can look a certain way, that, first of all, it's it, it motivates them to spend money, but it doesn't motivate them to move. Right. So that works great if your goal is to take people's money. It does not work great if your sincere intention is to help people experience physical and mental health and, and enjoy their bodies and participate in community. So 
That's right. It's demotivating. Mm -hmm. It changes what they experience when they move. So somebody comes into a movement experience and they've been told this is about burning calories. They spend the next 45 minutes maybe looking at a calorie tracker Mm -hmm. or making choices based on, you know, what they think will burn the most calories. They forget to make eye contact with the other person that they're moving with. They forget to experience how amazing it feels to do that movement. You, you actually miss. So if they forget to sing along to the lyrics of the song, you know, that's And playing. likely that's when the inner critic comes in. Exactly. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. So the motivation changes the actual direct experience, which mm-hmm. often then is not reinforcing. It's not as rewarding because they're criticizing themselves or they're missing out on the joy of connecting with others or connecting to the music or to sensing themselves as strong and powerful and, and graceful and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. So I just, the the reason I talk about it in the book is because that's not what it's about for me also. Like, I think sometimes people think that the whole point is to trick people into exercising. Like promise, you can promise people, oh, exercise is, you know, great, uh, great at relieving depression, which it is, or exercise is great at relieving loneliness. And it's like a trick. We're promising you that because really we want you to exercise, to lose weight. And that's not it. We've I want you to always, actually be happy. And we've always enjoyed movement. Yeah. That's what struck me when I was reading this is, oh, this isn't about discovering the joy of movement. This is about remembering the joy of movement. If you look at, at what we would define as like the central joys of being human, connecting, celebration, mastery, purpose, cooperation, um, the transcendence that we feel in nature. Courage. Courage. Music, resilience, so much mm-hmm. of the natural inherent joys that we crave as human beings, they are connected to movement and they always have been. It's why if you look at every culture in the world, when they want to experience joy or they want to experience community or they want to deal with loss and grief, every every culture in history makes movement, puts movement at the heart of those traditions and those practices because so, movement is how we experience them. That... I mean, it's so good to hear from someone like you who has researched this. Your entire career has been in some kind of avenue around the science behind movement or emotions, stress, willpower. Mm-hmm. And it is such a practice for all of us to remember that because the dominant message out in the world and I'm a part of the fitness industry, so I'm very self-aware of this. And we are changing the story at Bar 3. And that's why I love meeting people like you, because I really think as many people as we can gather to shout this message so that we all remember that exercise is joyful. It's not a chore. And that the promise to exercise to look like someone else or a better version of yourself is not evidence-based. It doesn't work. It fails us every time. Mm -hmm. And yet we all individually feel like we're failing. There is such shame in our bodies. There's such shame in movement. And that's what's so sad for me is is to realize that I have a 15-year-old daughter. It is normal for teenage girls to not like their bodies. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of normalized it. It's like, oh, that's a phase. They'll get over that. You know, that is not okay. It's not okay that our dominant conditioning is around not loving our bodies so that we buy fitness products and services to be, to then finally love them. I mean, talk about having to practice what you want to become. I mean, this is really important across the lifespan. I, I, uh, some of the classes I teach are specifically with 
older adults, people who are dealing with a lot of changes to their body, a lot of injuries, a lot of serious illnesses. And, um, you know, at that point, it's it's so clear that you you have to practice loving and embracing your body as it is. Mm-hmm. How do you continue to love your body mm-hmm. when your body gave you cancer? Mm-hmm. How do you love your body when you can no longer move one shoulder? Right. How how do you choose to experience joy through movement as our bodies change? And it's so important to start young. I mean, it's like it's tragic that young people who often have tremendous physical ability and they don't even appreciate yet what it's like to have that kind of ease in your body. Yeah. And to have that sense of not trusting that your body is, is somehow betraying you because of how it looks or whatever is going on. Because it doesn't look like the dominant images. And yeah. social media is more prolific now with the filters and this, you know, all the different takes to get the right angle, to look the certain part. And, and there's this idea of body positivity that you're not allowed to ever have a negative emotion right. or thought about your body. Like you right. have to perform body positivity mm-hmm. as if it's now shameful to ever experience shame. Mm-hmm. And so learning On, how, to, how to like hold so these opposites. Right. And I think movement is a tremendous vehicle for learning how to be with your complicated body and all of the different emotions you might feel and the thoughts that you have and to make a conscious choice to be grateful for whatever you can do in this moment, to look at your body and to say, you are the only friend who has been with me from the beginning and will be with me to the end. Mm -hmm. Like this body that allows me to experience life. I'm interviewing a woman named Hillary who about embodiment for the same series. And she had me write a letter to my body Mm. as if my body was my best friend. It was such a beautiful exercise because it was a practice in compassion and being honest. And I do think that that's with there. It's very on trend and I'm happy about it. The language is changing to body positivity, which I think is really, really positive. And there's a lot of talk of empowerment and being in your body just as it is. And there's a sense of confusion around it Mm -hmm. because that caption is often attached to an image on social media or wherever that is counter to that. Yeah. Or that it's the same image that is being used to shame people. It's like we just changed the word. Right. We changed the words, but we didn't didn't embody it, literally embody it. And I think it's just a good conversation for us to all have and be conscious of so that when we walk into a room, a group exercise room, or we walk into exercise and we have feelings of shame or we have that inner critic or that comparitis... Of course we do, right, yeah. to give ourselves a giant break because the world out there is telling us not to love our bodies. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of the reasons why in the book, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a lot of emphasis on telling the stories of people who don't fit the stereotype of the typical fitness enthusiast. Yeah, so I did notice People that. of all ages, people mm-hmm. with, with serious physical disabilities and um, the, that dance class for people with Parkinson's disease. Yeah. Um, the woman in her 60s who asked me to describe her as fat as part of her story so people would know that this woman I'm writing about who started running in her 60s and has run like 100 half marathons now, like, by the way, people should know she's fat and she's still fat and she's running 100 half marathons. Um, and I made a very conscious choice to tell the stories of people who are experiencing all of these joys through movement that did not require them to fix their bodies in some way that um, we often associate with either the goals of fitness or who is allowed to experience the joys of movement. Right, right. Yeah, I think, again, it isn't about discovering the joy of movement. It's about remembering the joy of movement and moving to be honest in our bodies just as they are. 
Um, okay, one one other last kind of couple questions, but one of the um, most interesting thing for me to read about, because I've known this, again, my instincts have known this, I've known this since I discovered group exercise when I was 19 years old at UCLA, is the role of music. Yes. You have a whole chapter dedicated to music. And I have to tell you, Kelly, we have a team of people, we obsess over music. And we have specific types of music for every section of class. Um, And we've just done this through our own kind of sociological, anthropological study of of human behavior and movement and what songs allow people to tap into their inner inner world. Maybe they'll close their eyes or what songs allow them to open up more and feel a part of a community. What songs have the best downbeat when we're all moving in sync versus some songs don't have as much of a downbeat so that people are really encouraged to move on their own rhythm. Um, so that's always something we've done. And so it was really f- refreshing for me to read the science behind music and how it changes your physiology. And Yes. Well, first of all, let's start with how music is an invitation to move. So if you look at brain imaging studies and you have people listen to music, um, one of the first things that you see in the brain is it activates the motor system of the brain, the, the areas of the brain that prepare to move, that release the dopamine to help you have the energy and motivation to move, the the parts of your brain that literally execute movement, they're so ready to go. For whatever reason, however we, you know, have adapted as human beings, our brains associate music with movement. So as soon as you bring move, uh, music into a movement experience, you are literally facilitating whatever movement you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I included that in that chapter, um, the the class for people with Parkinson's disease who literally, like they're, the core feature of that disease is impaired movement. And the music allows them to move in ways with grace, with strength, with playfulness, um, mm-hmm. with speed that they literally cannot do without music. But mm-hmm. music also accesses emotions mm-hmm. and um, and can allow us to move in ways that we talked about sensing yourself when the music has a certain quality to it and you move to that music you're better able to sense that quality in yourself so it can enhance the emotional experience of it um like you said moving to the beat of music is very similar to moving with other people there's a particular euphoria and joy that comes from moving to the beat of music and it also often gives us literally more energy there was a study i write about Mm where um runners literally consumed and used less oxygen to run when they were running to the beat of energizing music. Like, it's as if the music is literally supplying you with mm-hmm. energy to do the same amount of work. Well, you with, see with Olympic you athletes to, listening to their power song right oh, before a race. Or, yes. I mean, yeah. and that power song, I mean, the idea that the lyrics of a, a song, too, can put you in right. the right mindset. So one of the people I talked to for the book, Costas Karagiorgis, he's he's somebody who helps Olympic athletes come up with their training music and the music you listen to right before a competition mm-hmm. or the music you listen to when you're done with your training. And the idea is that you can create a whole framework of meaning around your movement experience by choosing, say, a song you listen to. Like, let's say you're driving to class. Put on a playlist that— Do you have a power song that oh, you listen to before class or I, that it's, it gets has, you fired up? It depends up. on what the class is. So, right. <laughs> because I teach so many dance classes, I'm often mm-hmm. um, choosing the 
the song that I think it was like the peak emotional experience of class. Right. Um, but I choose the way that I choose all of my songs for my classes is I, I want the song to bring out a certain experience in people's bodies. And, um, you know, I've been using uh, a remake of Respect by Aretha Franklin mm-hmm. in class. And it's like literally half my class started singing along. It was like, right. it was like my dream came true. It brought that so much the, out like, of them. empowering they're anthem. Throwing their arms in the air while they're singing R-E-S-P-C-T. It was phenomenal. I love uh, Where is the Love by oh, Black yeah. Eyed Peas. Yes. That's my like forever yeah. been my anthem, yeah. my power song. Um, and so the idea is that you can choose your own power song. Mm-hmm. So before you go yeah. into a class, and not just as a teacher, right, but as a participant, right, listen to a song that, you know, uh, like listen to a Lizzo song that's about self-love yes. and then go into your class. Yes. Um, or what do you listen to right after you mm-hmm. you um, move your body? It can allow you, you know, I think uh, a song that I often use for cool down was uh, Life, which is about choosing to, by Desiree, about mm. the gratitude you have for just being alive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, listen to a song like that when you've just finished working your body that right. reinforces your sense of gratitude for being alive. Um, there's so many ways to use rise music to enhance. Rise Up by Andre Day. Is oh, it Andre absolutely, Day? yes. Oh, yes. Rise Up, that's, that's another beautiful. power song. Yeah. yeah, I used to use that as a cool down too. Yeah, awesome. Okay, final question. Um, we're asking everybody this, and it's it's something that we ask ourselves before we practice bar three as well, because whatever it is we practice, we become. Um, what is your present truth right now? My present truth, I, I think the, the sort of central story of my life has been finding ways to try to choose courage over choosing fear mm. and to figure out what, what gives me the ability to do that, sort of like the, because I want to have the experience of choosing courage over fear and what I am learning is the only things that will allow me to find courage is a connection with others and a sense of either common humanity, that like whatever fear I'm facing, I'm not alone in it, mm-hmm. and the possibility that choosing courage will help others. And there is basically nothing else that will <laughs> reliably give me access to the energy of courage. So my present truth is... It's still a work in progress, and I'm practicing it, and I'm getting better at uh, aligning myself with those those very powerful ideas and truths about our human interdependence in moments when some part of my brain or body is trying to get me to choose fear instead. Well, I'm glad you courageously chose to write this book because I know that takes courage to put yourself out in the arena, as Brene Brown talks about, and up on stages, like your wonderful TED Talks, and I'm, you know, I'm so glad you're you're saying this because it's in my acknowledgments for this book. I say how grateful I am to the people who shared their stories for this book. I mean, it's one thing to write a book, Mm -hmm. but I was blown away by people who are willing to share their stories. Yeah. You know, the stories that I tell in this book about people's relationship with movement, I chose the stories that involve tremendous vulnerability as well as strength. And to think that, like, somebody would openly share their story of how movement helps them deal with suicidal thinking Mm -hmm. and choose to live. It's an Mm -hmm. incredibly vulnerable story. And what do they get out of it? The only thing they get out of it, they told me they were doing this because they wanted to help others. Right. So that's... 
the courage. I am so grateful to the people in this book who told mm-hmm. their stories. Yeah. And I feel like they're the heroes of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Courageous storytelling with vulnerability is how we connect. Yeah. It's how we see um, how similar we really all are. Um, well, thank you so much. It's been it's I been am. a pleasure. Thank you.